Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the Texas shooting, the SBC report, and the Indo-Pacific region. On Tuesday, the unthinkable happened when a, an 18-year-old killed 19 students and two adults in a shooting at a Texas elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Um, obviously, the um, I can't wrap my head around this evil. I can't wrap my head around the pain that these families must be experiencing. Um, the individual uh, shot his grandmother before driving to the school. Um, and there have been some conflicting reports from the police department in Uvalde about exactly what happened when the shooter got to the school. Uh, so initially, it was reported that the uh, shooter uh, was confronted by an officer, a school officer, and the school officer was shot, and then the shooter proceeded to uh, go into a classroom. Uh, however, as of Thursday, uh, the, the police said that the shooter actually lingered outside the school for 12 minutes, uh, firing shots outside of the school. He then walked into the school and barricaded himself in a classroom. Uh, police did arrive at 1144 uh, and, it, and allegedly exchanged gunfire with the individual. However, it would not be an hour later until an hour later when a Border Patrol tactical unit went into the school and was able to get in the classroom and kill the shooter. Uh, it's just kind of a it's a bizarre situation that we got such conflicting reports from the, the police department. Uh, I, I really, this absolutely should be investigated as to what exactly happened and how in the world this individual was able to get into uh, the school, especially if he was outside for 12 minutes and apparently just walked in uh, into the school and, and through an unlocked door. Um, so that just that absolutely needs to be uh, investigated. This has also kind of renewed the conversation around gun control and um, the right to bear arms and and all of that 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 entails. Um, I don't want to get into that right now. I don't think this is the time to get into that. Um, I think we should. Uh, mourn this tragedy. We should be praying for the people of Uvalde, for these families, for the community, and uh, well, we can have those conversations uh, at another time. But right now, uh, it is just a matter of doing what we can to comfort these people, to pray for these people. Um, you know, again, these tragedies are just unfathomable. I can't wrap my head around them. Can't wrap my head around what causes someone to do that. But also, at the same time, what uh, the the pain and the suffering that. Um, these families must be experiencing. Um, it just it makes me you know long for the day that Christ will return, that He will renew His creation, that He will uh, end uh, you know evil and pain, that He will conquer it once and for all and put an end to it. Um, it just may that day come uh, quickly. Um, and uh, in light of this, uh, may it may that bring restoration that un- and um, a a renewal that only uh, Christ can bring. In other depressing news, uh, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, published and released a report, a 288-page report on Sunday. Uh, The report was commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention in response to uh, news reports uh, over the way that allegations of sexual abuse were handled within the denomination and uh, within leadership. And the report found that allegations of sexual abuse were ignored or covered up for nearly 20 years by senior members of the denomination's executive committee. 
Um, so in case uh, you don't know what the SBC is, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country. So it's Protestant, not Catholic. Um, it has 14.8 million members. Um, and the Southern Baptist Convention, that label, actually refers to both the annual two-day convention that occurs um, in a different city every year. Uh, so the SBC refers to that uh, convention and to the decentralized organization of autonomous local churches. Uh, so essentially what happens is these churches across the country can uh, claim uh, membership in the SBC in the Southern Baptist Convention. They give money to uh, a pool of uh, a kind of a pool of money for missions that the SBC oversees. And, and so the SBC actually, um, you know, is considered, that is considered the SBC as well. So it's both the to annual two-day convention and this kind of decentralized organization. Well, uh, those, um, in, during that convention every year, uh, representatives of local churches will go and attend the convention. And those representatives of those local churches, so those can be uh, pastors of various uh, local churches that can be elders, uh, whoever uh, the church sends, they go and they actually elect a, a president and other officers that then form this executive committee. And uh, the report found that it was this executive committee, the, the leadership of the SBC, uh, that were, tr- uh, you know, treating uh, allegations of sexual abuse. Um, they were ignoring them. Uh, very often they were, uh, they were, again, it's 288 pages, so it's just long and extensive and detailed about all the different allegations, uh, all the different, uh, there's a lot of bullying that was taking place of leadership, essentially bullying people who uh, brought up uh, allegations of sexual abuse. Uh, in, ca- in some cases, they were, in many cases, they were aware of um, you know, legit allegations of sexual abusers, and those sexual abusers were still uh, leaders of the various local churches. Um, and um, the report also found, and I think this is an important point to point out, that the main concern of the executive committee was, quote, avoiding any potential legal liability for the SBC. Uh, so in order to protect themselves under the law in certain ways, they essentially uh, made sure that things were done under the table, um, behind closed doors, that nothing was really aired out, that they didn't get in trouble by the law. So they didn't. So in some cases, they didn't even bring certain allegations to uh, the local officials. There was this, this idea that we need to protect ourselves legally. Um, and so they did that, but they did that in, in ways that weren't necessarily, you know, morally uh, upright. And in fact, were not morally upright in the slightest bit. Um, and so this is a shocking report. It's not necessarily shocking as we heard about a lot of these allegations. Um, but again, this is the largest Protestant denomination. And it is uh, the, I mean, clearly it has kind of cultivated a culture uh, that does not take sexual abuse a serious or allegations serious. Um, again, in w- in one instance, uh, the the uh, president at the time of the SBC decided to uh, let a guy go, um, let him go in, into the you know, removed him essentially from he stepped down from his position as pastor, but then didn't report him to the authorities. 
Um, so it's just, again, over and over and over again in the report, it talks about these different instances. It's heartbreaking. The church should be better than this. Um, I will say it is a good, this is a great way to deal with this kind of thing, is to vote on a report from an outside organization that came in and, and did this investigation. Um, so, so now the SBC is uh, doing a good job of confronting it, of having this outside organization come in and being an end investigating, uh, which it, 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 again, as the Bible talks about, brings um, you know all things will come to the light, and this investigation is doing that. Um, so it, it's heartbreaking to find all this stuff out, to read about all this stuff. But at the same time, it's a good thing that the SBC has initiated this investigation, that they have done this report, because now some reconciliation can happen, some things can be confronted, and things can be fixed, which hopefully happens uh, quickly. Quickly to some uh, other news. The cities uh, across the country are losing population. Uh, so census figures released on Thursday showed that the United States' largest cities were losing population. Uh, so eight of the ten largest cities lost population uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, San Antonio and Phoenix were the only two cities in the top ten that did not lose population. Um, cities like New York City lost 3.5%. Los Angeles lost 1% of their population. Chicago lost 1.6% of their population. And San Francisco lost a staggering 6.3% of their population. But it's not just the largest cities in the country that are losing population like this. Uh, it is several cities that actually had been growing. They also lost population. So think of cities like Denver, Nashville, Seattle, Atlanta. All of these cities have been growing uh, and they actually, in the last couple of years, have lost population as well. The reason, and there's a variety of reasons why something like this would happen, but uh, a lot of people uh, are noticing that it started with the pandemic. When the pandemic happened, a lot of people moved out of the cities um, for a variety of reasons. Um, number one is kind of the rise of online work. So if you have a, if your job goes remote, there's no reason to be close to a downtown area if you don't want to be. Uh, you don't have to be close to an office because you can work remotely. And so because of that, you can now uh, you have the freedom to leave the city. Um, particularly when the pandemic started and, you know, cities are, everyone's closer together. It's, it's much harder for, to avoid uh, a, a, a virus like COVID. And so you move out to an area where you're kind of more distant from people. Um, so that can be a cause as well. Also, a lot of millennials are starting to have kids. Uh, the the um, report cited that as a reason. Um, I don't necessarily buy that reason because, of people, you know, millennials are just another set of generation of having kids. It's not like they there's this huge baby boom happening right now. And so I don't necessarily know if that would be why people are uh, moving out, but um, that's what the report cited. And then um, the other one is high housing prices in cities. So, you know, housing has gotten so expensive in a lot of these cities that people are leaving because they can get more for their buck. Uh, they can get a bigger house, more land, et cetera. Uh, and some of the effects of this uh, movement, this demographic change, I think are interesting to think about. For example, I think there's going to be a lot of political implications, obviously. Uh, the suburbs are going to have more power. If that's where people are moving, then the, sub the suburban areas across the country are going to have even more power. They already have a ton of power, and now they're going to have an increasing amount if more and more people move out there. Also, 
if more and more people are moving out to the suburbs, that means they've got to live somewhere. And that means that suburban housing prices are likely to continue to rise uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, so uh, those are some things to keep an eye out. Uh, there's probably going to be more effects of this, but uh, it's going to be an interesting trend to watch. I wonder if it will reverse at some point. Uh, I wonder what will be the effect in these city areas. Uh, what Will crime continue to increase because now there's less people and less people breeds a kind of uh, more opportunity for crime, you know, all sorts of different possible effects that could come about and something to, worth keeping an eye on. Now on to international news, uh, and I want to talk uh, about the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so the reason I want to talk about this region is because on Monday, Biden announced a uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF. So this is a framework. It's not a trade deal, so it does not need congressional approval. Um, but the uh, the uh, framework cites four priority areas. So number one is standardizing rules in the digital economy. Number two, improving supply chain resilience. Number three, promoting environmentally friendly technology uh, and infrastructure. And then four, opposing money laundering, corruption, and tax evasion. Uh, so uh, the partner countries in this framework, again, it's a framework, it's not a trade deal, it's a framework. Um, these partner countries can pick and choose where and how they get involved in this framework. Uh, countries involved are uh, U.S., Japan, South Korea, India, Australia, Bruni, Indonesia, Malaysia, New Zealand, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Uh, so essentially, this is a statement of agreed principles more than a commitment to particular policies. Uh, so uh, if you think about typically a, a trade agreement is going to be, we promise to abide by these policies, these tariff rates, these um, conditions upon which we trade, etc. This is uh, simply just a statement of agreed principles, uh, not necessarily specific policy positions that these countries are agreeing to. The reason why I think this is noteworthy is because this comes after Donald Trump withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnerships. Uh, that was the TPP. Uh, so the TPP was a, kind of a, a similar sort of thing, uh, though this doesn't go nearly as far as the Trans-Pacific Partnerships did. Um, it, it is important to note that this uh, TPEF does not sorry, the IPEF does not include Taiwan. Uh, that is because that there are other countries in the IPEF that uh, rely on China uh, and Chinese trade, and they essentially refused to join this, this kind of agreement uh, because they did not want to anger China, China by recognizing Taiwanese uh, not only sovereignty, but also working with the Taiwanese uh, government. So, in light of um, this, all of this, uh, there's also a report that came out from Reuters that talked about a Chinese proposal for deeper security and trade ties in the Pacific. Uh, China plans to press Pacific nations at a summit in Fiji the next few days. So this is why I think this region is so important and why this agreement um, is a big deal, but not necessarily 
uh, a, a big deal. Uh, it isn't as good as it could be. So it's a big deal. It's good to see that the United States government is recognizing that this region of the world is going to be where the power conflict between the United States and China takes place. It's going to be in this Indo-Pacific region. But the reason why I say that this needs to be significantly better is because, again, it is simply a statement of of these principles that these countries agree to not policy positions. So if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I am a die-hard free trader. I think that free trade is the leads to the greatest economic prosperity uh, for all countries involved through things like comparative advantage, and that tariffs and things that barrier, trade barriers, lead to worse economic conditions for everybody. Sometimes those effects are minimal. Sometimes those effects are dispersed so that you can't really notice them. But it leads to negative effects to the standard of living of all countries involved. And also, one thing that free trade does is that it gets countries so interconnected economically that they have to play by the rules. So think about Russia right now. Russia decided to invade Ukraine, and when they did that, the entire world decided to um, cut off, put in economic sanctions on them, to cut them off and isolate them from the world trade, from the world economy. And because of that, Russia's economy is suffering. So it, it forces, when, when you have free trade and you have these free trade agreements, it forces countries to make a decision whether they want to prosper economically or whether they want to play by the uh, or, or whether they want to break the uh, international order and the international rules. Russia decided that they would rather break the rules than live uh, have a, a, a prosperous economy. So I bring all of this up because that's what we need to do in the Indo-Pacific region. We need free trade agreements. We need defense alliances. We need these things to push back against China. Okay, if if like everyone seems to think, if China is the next threat to American hege- uh, uh, hegemony in the world, uh, American uh, power and leadership in the world, if China is the threat to that, then we have to um, counteract that. But we have to counteract that not through military inter- interference, but but defense alliances and through economic means. And so this agreement needs to be stronger because it needs to include free trade. It needs to include, if nothing else, if not free trade, then at least lowering tariffs and, and trade barriers and quotas and things like that. Uh, open immigration needs to be occurring. like Things like that that would um, benefit all countries involved. We need to be doing that because we, because in that case, countries like Thailand and Vietnam and Cambodia and India, these countries would become reliant on the United States and would join with us in opposing China. And if we don't do this, and this is an important point here, if we don't do this, China will, as we see, right? So China plans, like I said, to press Pacific nations at a summit for this proposal that brings about and calls for deeper security and trade ties in the Pacific. If we do not step into this this region of the world and uh, through free trade agreements, through defense alliances, um, lead in this region of the world, China will. And China uh, will, uh, they, these countries will become more reliant on China, which will mean that they will be more likely to back and support China in uh, any conflict with the United States. 
Um, the you saw on Thursday the administration, Biden administration, kind of um, getting a, you know saying at least offering platitudes towards this. So on Thursday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken gave a speech at George Washington University where he addressed uh, China and this region. He said that U.S. strategy in terms of China, quote, in three words, invest, align, compete. Invest, align, compete. And he mentioned that um, he wants the United States and the United States needs to invest in research and domestic infrastructure and education. Now, I'm all about investing in um, things that are going to make this country prosperous. But how is investing in domestic infrastructure going to lead us to uh, address the China issue? That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm all for some great domestic infrastructure. I'm all for some uh, investing in research. Um, But the market can do a lot of that stuff. Um, The market can invest in research. The market can also address all sorts of different infrastructure issues. But how is our domestic infrastructure going to help us against China and bolstering alliances in the Indo-Pacific region? That just doesn't make sense to me. That, That seems to me like... Uh, the administration wanting to push their uh, domestic agenda, you in in the um, in the guise of international relationships or foreign policy. Uh, this, he also mentioned that he wants to bolster security alliances, which I am absolutely all for. Right, and he actually uh, cited the Quad Alliance. So this is kind of a uh, an alliance that is beginning to really develop between Australia, India, Japan, and U.S. I think this is a great defensive alliance. I think we these four countries have a, a an interest in opposing China, and so uh, with these different interests uh, aligned, we should take advantage of that and team up essentially to uh, push back against Chinese aggression. So I'm all for bolstering security alliances. Um, He also mentioned trade partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. Okay, so he mentions all this, right? But then we look back at the framework that we just talked about, the IPEF, and turns out that uh, it's not very lifting of trade barriers or a trade partnership really at all it's a it's an agreement to of the stated principles um, but not really some practical uh, policy positions that would actually benefit uh, the trade relationships in this region so i just i want the administration to do more moral of the stories and summarize a kind of a, a long ramp there but i i just want the administration to do more this framework's a decent step but it, it, man it just isn't it doesn't do enough we need free trade we need security alliances military alliances uh, etc in the indo-pacific region and now on to the breakdown of the breakdown where I talk about my newsletter, the Burnett Breakdown, that you can read and subscribe to on Substack. And this week I talked about the elections that took place in Georgia on Tuesday. So in, on Tuesday you had the primaries that took place, Democratic and Republican primaries, though the Republican primaries were kind of the ones that everyone were watching. And that is because um, it was seen as kind of a uh, a Trump versus the old Republican Party or the Republican Party uh, that has uh, been around and has been in power. And 
uh, Donald Trump basically recruited a list of a litany of candidates to run against incumbents. And so this the elections in Georgia was kind of largely seen as how much influence in the Republican Party and with the Republican base does Donald Trump still have. And so in my newsletter, I talked talk about some thoughts that I had about the election results. And uh, first was that Brian Kemp uh, absolutely annihilated uh, David Perdue, won by uh, like 50 points, got like s- over 70% of the vote uh, that Brian Kemp got, which is uh, astronomical. A lot of people are actually predicting uh, a pretty uh, sizable win, especially in the last days when the David Perdue campaign basically stopped. Uh, they basically stopped everything once they realized that how badly they're going to lose. But no one, I think, really had them losing this badly. And I talk about my newsletter why I think that is, and I think simply put, it's because Brian Kemp is has been a very conservative governor. Governor. So uh, I mentioned in the newsletter that I didn't vote for Governor Kemp the f- or Brian Kemp the first time around in 2018 because if you remember back to then he ran as basically just another Trump politician. In fact, in some of his commercials he said he was a Trump conservative. And uh, me being not the huge fan of Trump that I am, uh, I just thought he was going to be another uh, mini Trump, and I didn't really want that. So I didn't vote for him in 2018. Um, and I just left the the blank the um, the ballot blank for the governor uh, race, and um, he got into office, and he's completely and utterly proven me wrong. So economically, I mentioned some of his things that he's done. He uh, implemented uh, he just recently actually implemented uh, ta- tax cuts, um, uh, state income tax cuts. He uh, in 2020 demanded that uh, all government agencies reduce their budgets by 10 percent, um, and uh, this kind of this, along with uh, opening, reopening the economy, when he did, and remember, he got heat upon heat for doing that. Uh, he got you know, articles written about him. Uh, Donald Trump actually uh, got into it and criticized him for do- opening as quickly as he did. But he um, cut government spending and opened up businesses, which allowed for a budget surplus in which he did the greatest thing that you can do with my tax money, and that is you give it back to me. Uh, and so he actually sent out money back to taxpayers. Now, maybe you can say this is politically motivated and that he did this in just around election time, how convenient. And you know what? He probably did. But you know what? I would rather, you know how you get my vote? You give me my own money back, right? So th- it's important to note here that th- these um, rebates, essentially, or refunds were not, uh, you know, mon- money, were not handouts. They were not just uh, kind of like the stimulus checks. They weren't that, right? They weren't. They were actually, we collected too much money. The government collected too much money, so we're going to give it back to the taxpayers. Um, and I think about what that means. That means that they could have found a way to spend that money. And I'm sure, and government will find a way. Okay, where there's a will, there's a way in spending money with the government. And yet, he didn't. He gave that back to the taxpayers. So I think that's just one of the greatest things that conservative governor can do. At the same time, he didn't just—he hasn't just been conservative economically. He's actually, he has also been conservative um, in in other realms as well. So I, I mentioned the heartbeat bill that he passed, which is uh, has been a hu- is a huge win and will be a huge win if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade in June. Um, the uh, heartbeat bill is a, a pro-life win, like I said, but also you have the constitutional carry that he just passed, so you don't have to have a permit to carry a gun now, as long as you can legally still carry a gun. Uh, and, and a side note here, I've seen reports about this constitutional carry that uh, it gets rid of the background check. It gets rid of the background check to get the permit. So in order, so in order to get a permit, you had to provide a background background check. 
but it didn't get rid of the requirement to for a background check for to get the gun. Okay, so you still need the background check to get the gun. You just don't have to double up the background check to get the permit. Now, anyone in the state of Georgia that can legally carry, so this doesn't apply to felons still, this doesn't apply to people who couldn't own a gun before, uh, now uh, you can carry a gun without a permit. Um, it also recognizes the uh, permit of uh, other residents and their right to carry in the state as well. And so this is his uh, his conservative agenda. This is what he has already implemented. Uh, again, he hasn't been as as you know s- good on school choice as I want him to be. I wish he would do more for school choice. Um, but this is a huge list of conservative accomplishments, and this is why he won, because it turns out that conservatives in the Republican Party still like conservative policies. And so as much talk as there's going to be about, oh, you know, Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that, and I'll get into that in a second, the it, Kemp won because he has been a good conservative governor. But speaking of Donald Trump, I do think the elections in, Don, in uh, Georgia kind of do allude to some of the, his influence being limited in Georgia. So I think this doesn't apply elsewhere. So I'm not talking about the United States and, and states like Ohio. They, they have their own circumstances. But in Georgia, I think it's clear that Donald Trump's influence is limited um, to really if you have an open seat. So it, 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 his litany of candidates that he ran against incumbents, all of them lost. Raffensperger beat the secretary, uh, the um uh, Jody Heiss, which um, R- Raffensperger's high name ID in the state, um, and still uh, in, in high name ID as being against Trump, and still uh, not only won, but uh, went above the 50% to avoid a runoff. And so if you are an incumbent, it seems like you're pretty safe, that Donald Trump is not going to be able to knock off many incumbents in Georgia. Uh, so that tells me the Republican Party is still content and still happy with the Republican Party that doesn't include Trump in it. The only uh, back Trump-backed candidates that won were Herschel Walker for Senate, which it's Herschel Walker, so that is just a unique situation in Georgia anyway. And then uh, the lieutenant governor position or uh, office, uh, which Burt Jones won. Um, but to me, again, that was not an incumbency. That was an open seat and you had a race. So when you have this open seat, Donald Trump's endorsement can help. But when you don't, then it won't uh, necessarily help. And then finally, I mentioned Georgia voting law. So back when this was passed, a few a year or so ago, uh, this was seen as you know the worst thing ever. It was Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Eagle, as Joe Biden called it, and uh, Georgia had the record early voting uh, in spite of this new law. So clearly, it is not Jim Crow. I said this at the time. It uh, expanded voting in the state by enshrining those uh, laws that were or those kind of temporary measures that were put in place during the pandemic. It actually enshrined those into law uh, for uh, all elections going forward. Uh, and so we'll see that we see. That that uh, this doesn't prevent voter suppression at all, like we were told it would, and by how many um, Democrats said. And then finally, I end my newsletter by saying that uh, I think that Brian Kemp will beat Stacey Abrams, but not only, not only beat her in November, but by a significantly larger margin than before. I think he's going to um, beat her pretty handily, a much uh, in, a, in a much more significant way than last time. And that is it for the podcast this week. Please like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide. And I hope that you will return again next week.